Welcome to the Lavender Menace podcast. This is Sunny. Uh, they should pronouns betrayer of friends, trust, and a generally true. evil person with a Capricorn moon. So, this is true. Hi, my name is Renaissance. I also use they should pronouns. And I am someone who tries to set boundaries, yet is somehow continually unsuccessful in maintaining them. So... I'm a cancer. I'm a leech. I'm, I'm like the mom that like never leaves you alone. That's me. And that's yes. why you should never have children. Yeah, you're right. Because I would be like looking through their phones being like, mm, you shouldn't date that guy. Like, <laughs> you, would, you would have like your kids would have zero sense of privacy or they wouldn't even know what a boundary is because you would just you would not even let that be a thought that creeps into their mind yeah I'm yeah this is this is true um (laughs) anyway okay so so I see but I also think my inability to respect boundaries is also why I am obsessed with taylor swift because i don't care about what she has to say about us not not speculating about her personal life i will speculate about her personal life i don't give a fuck mom i will be like it's it's having issues with authority while also being the person who like abuses any position of authority and be and abuses boundaries are not authority boundaries are just how someone saying how they would like to be treated yeah, it's yeah, though no, it's that my disrespect for that, like how how I like love to like yell at my teacher. Well, I don't know. Have I grown out of that? No. No, <laughs> why, why is that? No, you have not. Why why are you hesitating on that? You have not grown out of that in any way since. Okay. <laughs> It's, this is my Joe moment when I have a baby. Oh my gosh. Okay. That, what, what a great, what a great Easter egg for, um, Later, what is for come? part two of the podcast. Yes. Cause yeah. as we know, this part, this, this podcast, no, this podcast has three parts. First part is mm-hmm. we talking, us talking about something going on, on the internet, something that a hot take that you can submit to us email us at lavendermenacepodcast at gmail.com if you have if you have a hot take for us to discuss um and it's also for us to just banter before we go into our second part of the podcast where we discuss a piece of media that we've consumed together and this week as we teased last week we consumed a book together we ate it we ate the pages we shoved them into our throats and then yeah no um and then we held out the author of the book captive and made her answer all of our questions uh Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what and, and entertain our little nerdy ideas of what the book is about and little things. Listen, I'm not a nerd. Uh, don't say that about me. You can do that. You you can have do almost five thousand subscribers on your book. Thing makes you more of a nerd than I am. Uh, okay, well, listen. <laughs> I mean, well, you have a YouTube channel too, so yeah, but not a booktube channel. And mine isn't active. Like, I don't, I don't even have a thousand subscribers. So. Right. Well, anyway, exactly. so. Anyway. Okay, and the third, the third part of the podcast is us recommending media to each other. Um, mm-hmm. So, because we're, we're the same, but also very different in very evil ways. So it's really yes. fun. Yes. And today's 
hot take thing that we are again none of you have emailed us none of you had emailed no wait, wait. we've had like three emails there's one person who i think is from india and they were talking oh, yeah. about how they wanted us to discuss something that i think was really pertinent about like like basically like homo nationalism and the idea and like imperialism within the con- the conception of queerness uh and stuff which we will we will definitely try to discuss yeah. on, a, on a different podcast maybe next week's um we'll see that was a very interesting email thank you and also someone emailed that us was. talking about like glee and to be honest now i don't think either of us have watched wait you've watched glee have you what's your glee relationship what's your glee <laughs> status <laughs> what's my relationship status with glee um, I used I watched it as a kid, like as it was airing, like week to week. Um, but my parents and I, once they like graduated, we didn't really uh, live, laugh, love with the New York storylines. Mm. Um, so I haven't seen like at all later seasons. Um, and I also haven't watched it since it aired. I did not go through that glee phase where everyone was watching it during quarantine on Netflix. Um, so, you know, I just remember listening to the covers as a kid and some of the storylines and the characters. Was Santana your gay awakening? Surprisingly, no. But mm. I I was, I remember being a kid and my parents not liking Quinn for Bray. And I was like, no, like she is just, like, yeah, she's a bitch sometimes, but in a fun, flirty kind of way. And I like, don't know who really... Quinn Fabray is. Is she the blonde uh, cheerleader? Yes, Diana okay. Abron. Yeah. Um, and I another, remember another universe in the gay, another per- active chess piece in the gayer universe. Yes. But anyways. Yes. So we will be talking about Glee maybe sometime in the future, and also that great email. But more emails, please. We have some. I yeah. want or more. or message us on Twitter, like whatever. Mm-hmm. Do whatever. Do whatever you want, really. Um, and speaking of whatever you want, uh, we're talking about Kaler today. Uh, yeah. and, and the iconic slideshow from 2018 called Reputation is About Carly Kloss, a comprehensive guide to the gayest album of 2017. And personally, although Reputation is not my favorite okay i don't have a favorite taylor album because i'm just i'm just i'm just a i'm a slut for her music so i can't i can't do anything about that but reputation is something that i just is so close to my heart because i am always in my reputation era i'm always in my reputation phase i'm always in that mindset and i just like listening to that album a lot and i think that this is something that needs needs to be deconstructed and i'm glad that the gaylers before us have done the work mm-hmm. I also do not have every time I think I have a favorite Taylor album then I like remember another one it's kind of like how I can't have a single favorite Taylor Swift song because it just like like I've gone through probably like six or seven favorite Taylor Swift songs now yeah well see we were talking about this last night because people were there's this one like Swifty TikTok that was like what's okay you're getting in the car with your best friend what song are you what Taylor Swift song are you are you playing while driving yeah and I I I failed I failed but horrendously yeah it was horrendously it was really bad I'm so sorry um it was really because I thought you were Okay, whatever. I thought okay, you were the basic bitch that we both ended up being. Because we both kind of, like, were like, yeah, August. Because like, August is so good. Also, with the selection of the song. Because it, it's not like they had every single one of her songs. So, August is one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs. Like, full disclosure. <laughs> Hands but down, But it's not bro. my current number one favorite. And it was not in the TikTok. So, I feel like I'm right. not 
that right. right i mean okay well your current number one favorite is long story short or no right where you oh. left me right where yes. you left me my my favorite i think is long story short right now um, i i had a long story short phase though so exactly and i, I had a this is me trying phase i had yesterday okay kind of unrelated but they're besties so it's fine um yesterday i was having a liability by lord moment i was having a i was having a time to blast liability and and not cry because oh i don't cry i'm, I'm sorry mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a cancer but i'm a capricorn moon so Bitches do not cry. Bitches uh-huh. being me. Bitches being me. I don't cry, okay? Anyway, so I wasn't crying. There's like was... a lot of trying to establish that you didn't cry to cover up a very real possibility that you did, in fact, cry. I did not cry. Lot. I was just really sad. I was really sad. So I was listening to live. I was really sad because I thought Renaissance hated me, which I think, okay, I mean, listen, I think Renaissance does hate me still, but it's for a different reason that you, you our listener, doesn't understand because Renaissance is not including that part of the podcast. Okay. Well, this this is the thing is that I... I don't hate you. Okay, this is the cycle. Nothing happens. You think I hate you. I say I don't hate you. Then you do something that really annoys me (laughs) for like a brief moment. And I'm like, I I need, okay, this is, this is another thing. I need space and time. I'm like, this isn't going to last forever. I will like stop being annoyed at this. I just need space and time. Because we have space and time, nothing continues to happen. But because nothing's happening, you think I hate you and then that cycle just goes over and over and over again of me saying I don't hate you you doing something that kind of really annoys me and then you thinking that I hate you because of that when that's not the case because you should know that as some as someone who's an Aries and has ADHD I feel very intense emotions briefly like they don't last it'll never yeah that's what that's why I was having a liability moment yesterday because I mean I was really after you like texted me I was really considering typing something emotional and 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 really stupid and then I was like mm, let's not so then I texted my friends and we talked about it and that's what I was doing last night too last night I was like oh guys God. I'm gonna go guys I need to jump off a cliff right I need to jump off a roof but this time it not not fall and get staples in my head fall and just perish from this earth I, not, I can't believe no okay well now this is making me sound like I'm just like a bitch for like no no you're not a bitch like, I'm just I'm I'm a little bitch I'm the, a little the bitch thing is I, I have just been very emotionally exhausted and very like drained feeling for a considerable amount of time now and so I just I was not in my quirky banter like I just wasn't in my like best friend space and I was watching a lot of movies and I was like oh I should watch the movie that Sunny has been recommending but I didn't want to be like watch it and not tell you and be like oh yeah I watched a movie that you recommended me without saying anything so I texted you and we watched the movie together but it wasn't like the most interactive and like gaspy like there's some moments but you weren't looking at the teleparty when I was like trying to oh, swipe yeah. it on there anymore I was looking at the teleparty a lot and then but you weren't looking at it and then when you were yeah. I wasn't looking at it, like it was yeah. Uh, yeah so there was like that kind of moment happening and I just wasn't in my best space but it wasn't like because of anything that like you had done in particular since that I was feeling really emotionally drained and like wasn't down for like conversation I just wanted to watch a movie and so that's what ended up happening and then Sunny thought that I just like hated them and wasn't talking to them and that wasn't the case I just like well I wanted to watch the movie but I didn't want to be like oh I'm gonna watch this without you and I did really want to watch it with you I just wasn't in my 
my banter mood. Yay! <laughs> I'm honored. Yes. I, mm, I wonder... I wonder what point I'm going to have to be at for this to be a, a re, like a reversal, like for you for you to think that I am the one who's being who's like being bitchy and like and being the one who's like dismissive and like not and not in the mood to like to like banter and talk. I mm, I don't know. When yeah. Okay. This is things that you are like. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying I to think of it because I'm trying to think of a situation in which you're like you reach your like max capacity before I do. Like I can see it being a mutual moment where we both need space and time, but I'm trying to think of a moment in where you would need it and I didn't, and I would have to like pick up on that or mm. Mm. yeah or or we're like uh at like react to boundary that isn't mutual yeah it's probably just unlikely to happen just because i'm very i am i think i will always be the i'm always the crazy girlfriend in every relationship and every relationship i'm the crazy one i'm the crazy mm-hmm. i'm the crazy ex i'm the crazy i'm but i'm also okay this is the other thing though because i am so insane it makes me that much more like interesting but then because i'm interesting and because i'm fun because of how insane i am then i become then i i was this is why i was listening to liability and this is what i was talking about with my other friends was like was like because i'm so insane i like get friends from that but then like people are not just not physically able to deal with the actual insanity like up close as opposed to just observing it from afar and I mean this is just true for everyone I feel but it's like once you get to a level of like when someone like truly when you feel like someone is getting to a space where they like truly know you it's like that it it just becomes so it becomes so much more embarrassing to be vulnerable and yeah maybe that's just yeah it was I think it's it's like it's not the it's not the closeness or, or getting to know someone. It's just it's not self sustaining. Like it 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 takes a lot to maintain that over a long period of time, you know. Cause it's kind of like when you go to like summer camp with someone or like yeah. a really small stint and you can get really intimate and really close and really, really know someone. But the thing is that that only lasts like, you know that there's an end point. And yeah. so when you have, like, a friendship with someone that is more, you know, as, as long as you maintain the friendship, it can keep going. You ha- you, this is back to respecting boundaries. You have to respect people's boundaries in order to recharge or to let them have their own, like, time to you know put in the work to maintain that friendship you can't you like you you just can't go full throttle mm, yeah you know? like sometimes so, you have to like park the car in the getaway car i left oh you God. in the hotel okay anyway so speaking of reputation let's let's mm-hmm. so i'm i'm looking at the google slide right now and i think if you want to look at this as well just go to like what is it called like kaylorevidence.com or something like just search up like kaylor slideshow you'll see it mm-hmm. so anyways basically here it's saying that you know 
disclaimer everything i listed here is my personal opinion and speculation i'm not claiming to know taylor personally i'm not here to label her sexuality for her she could be bi lesbian sexual questioning she might even identify Mm -hmm. as straight that's not our business if y'all speculate that these songs are about men i'm allowed to speculate that they're about a woman so this is i mean that's a pretty good approach to i mean that's how we approach it i feel as well yeah yeah because the minute that taylor swift like says unequivocally you know she, she is straight heterosexual but even if she does it's like how many of us said we mm, never mind that's been me well like, that but like uh you know then i would like respect and listen to that but the thing is that that hasn't happened and she has she has had very public very close relationships with women and so i yeah. think it's and also even if she is straight and these weren't explicitly what she would identify as relationships as we will talk about, as you will hear in the interview later, is that really, really close female friendships always kind of blur that line yes. anyway, that yes. I still think makes a lot of the clues that people pick up on valid, whether or not yes, um, it was like what she, what she would call the same as like the relationship she's had with ex-boyfriends or something like that. For sure. Um, and so to discuss, okay, the thing is, I was thinking about this this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, like, actually, like, three people removed from Carly Kloss <laughs> because one of my good friends wor- – or not Carly Kloss, Taylor Swift. One of my good friends mm-hmm. works for Carly Kloss at her coding company, Code with Klossy. And then, you know, Carly Kloss is, you know, obviously connected to Taylor Swift. So I'm only – wow, I'm only three people removed from her. That's so crazy. But to describe who Carly Kloss is uh, – she was she's actually from st louis which is where i'm from um and where i am and she's from st louis she was scouted at like chesterfield mall which if you're from st louis <laughs> you'll you'll know how kind of silly that is or maybe not chesterfield maybe galleria i don't remember anyway she's like a giraffe she's like very tall and she she's you know taylor Swift describes her as quote a victoria's secret angel lady someone who has quote shiny abs quote actual sunshine Taylor's favorite person to dance with I mean this was before this was in 2018 or before because you know there is a fallout there's a fallout uh because as you know lots of very almost toxically close female friendships have reached a point of like a fallout um which I guess is what is what boundaries are for (laughs) yeah so that doesn't happen but listen um we're in the getaway car. Now, uh, now the rest of the podcast, the entire show is going to be dedicated to figuring out of uh, Kalor is Carly the one that did not respect boundaries, or was it and Taylor? I think I think Taylor respectfully, Taylor, I love you. If you ever find this podcast. <laughs> Ha- have you done self-reflecting on <laughs> Taylor? Taylor, let us know. Email us. Like, let us know. Email us. What's What's the self-reflection? Where What do we think? You know. Oh my god. Anyways, so reputation being about Kaylor, very very personal, very close to home. Um. <laughs> so basically, apparently they were inseparable leading up to and during the 1989 era. One of I think. The most pivotal era in Taylor Swift's career, I feel. Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, And, okay, this is according to Rolling Stone, Carly has her own bedroom in Taylor's apartment that Taylor keeps stocked with her favorite snacks. Doesn't matter that Carly has her own damn apartment a few minutes away. She needs her own room at her best friend's house. How convenient! 
uh, why? What the? That sounds like a line that like secret uh, lesbian actresses in like the forties and thirties would say. Like back it's when giving, everyone, like, it's giving the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. It's giving like, back when ev- it didn't matter what women did; they were they could only be seen as like close friends, so they could fully like make out, and people would yeah. be like, "Oh, best friends." They're but, sisters. Like, what's happening in the twenty tens? Like when. Yeah. People knew lesbians were real and existed. And yeah. they're like, yes, I yeah. have them. Like, that exactly. is so... Another thing about Kayla that I think is so funny is that, okay, in the slideshow, there's so many, like, compilations of, like, there are, like, photos together and stuff. Like, them holding hands and, like, all this. Where it's, like, in them hugging really close and tight and stuff. It's, like, the thing is, is that because they're women like people give a pass to so much of what women do and it's also not helped by the fact that like you know straight girls queer baiting on tiktok love to like go viral for like kissing each other or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like where where it's like like even the public perception of what is queer and what isn't like is so like fucking blurred but something okay a comment that i have about the whole Kayla thing is that if it was, like, a legit, if it was, like, a relationship in any sense of the term beyond a platonic friendship, like, it is such a clear example of how, like, lesbians, like, or, like, gay people, like, just date carbon copies of each other. Because these girls look the same. Like. (laughs) They do. No, I mean, well, that's even been shown with, like, her and Joe even kind of look like. Yeah, they look like siblings. Come on now. Yeah. I think that's just Taylor, which. Taylor liking people who look like her is not helping her case of not being gay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But see, basically, okay, so another point on the PowerPoint is that public interaction between the two died down when they were caught dancing very closely. This was hashtag Kissgate at a mm-hmm. 1975 concert in December 2014. So, but there, and it says here, since this, this like, this PDF document was, like, published in... 2018 it says as far as we know they remain close quote-unquote friends to this day but the thing is that we do know now that they're not friends i mean at least from one from what i know from my friends at like code with classy and from what they've in their conversations with carly class over the years is that like by like 2018 it was pretty clear that they were not really talking or in each other's lives anymore and like the sort of public understanding and speculation around this is because Carly Kloss is still close friends with Scooter Braun who used to be Taylor Swift's not like manager but like someone who kind of had control over her record her record dealings and stuff so Mm -hmm. he never gave her back he never gave her the copy of her like full you know her master recordings of her original albums which is why she's releasing these she's re-releasing these re-recordings because so she can have full ownership of her own music so Mm -hmm. and I think that Carly like in from what we understand if Carly Kloss was the betrayer here I guess we're not respecting like a very obvious like career boundary within their relationship as these rich famous people so when 1989 was happening in this okay okay no even further back so in middle school and in high school I used to be obsessed with the Victoria's Secrets runway show that was televised gay Um, gay gay (laughs) I know should have been a red flag like that was literally one of my favorite televised events of the year I didn't give a fuck about anything else the Oscars Golden Globes and the Victoria's Secret runway show were like my favorite televised things um and still hold a very special place in my heart less so the Taylor or Victoria's Secret ones but award shows still do anyway so I 
watched. I was like on Instagram watching with my eyes like Carly Kloss and Taylor Swift meeting. And when Taylor Swift performed at that Victoria's Secret runway and all the like behind the scenes interviews and that are like uh, interspersed in the show on TV and also just on YouTube, like I watched their friendship form before my very eyes in middle school in very formative years and I really really liked like their friendship like as public figures you know and stuff like that and followed both of them on Instagram and so I saw all these pictures and me now being an out lesbian and knowing and reflecting back on like things that oh that was a very gay thing of me in middle school and liking this friendship (laughs) and relating to this friendship in a very like way during my formative years is like oh that was a very gay thing of me do they know that that was really gay Gay. you know do you even know that that was gay yeah like were they in their middle school I don't know if I'm gay or if this is my best friend era but like as adult women publicly right because I'd be like, oh, I want it, want that. But all, me also thinking that that was best friendship and now realizing that that was actually. Mm, yeah, I need to pee. Gay. I need of to pee. Of course you do. Sunny has to pee once again. I think that they are gay. And I'm like, I think that they're <laughs> gay because I'm gay. And it, you know, it's kind I of know. like I the, know. The, from the show Boondocks where it's like, I saw a gay, so I said gay. gay. That's not bullying. That's an astute observation. So that's how I feel about Kayla. But then I have a really close friendship with my friend, Kristen. And Kristen is really, really straight. Kristen, if you're listening to this, I don't think she listens to her podcast, but if she does, um, she is really, really straight. And I love her very, very much because she's my best friend. And I would like, my hands would get really cold in class and I would force her to hold hands with me around (laughs) school campus. I'm like, you will hold my hands because my hands are cold. And we like, I would lay on her lap in class and we would like stick our hands in each other's sleeves. And the teacher would be like, you you guys need to separate. (laughs) Like you cannot be just like swinging your legs on each other. But, like, we're just best friends. Like, it, there's absolutely, like, she's my best friend. She's very straight. That That's all that it is. So then I'm looking at Kayla, and I'm like, well, if they have a friendship dynamic that was, like, Kristen and I, and, like, Taylor Swift is obviously somewhat fruity, and I would guess Kayla's more, or uh, Kayla, Carly is more <laughs> of the straight one. Oh, my God. Then, like, I could see how people could like misconstrued that or whatever you know and and see that but also one they are adults and me and my best friend were children and so children have Mm -hmm. really close friendships with each other Mm -hmm. as we talk about later in the podcast yeah and second of all like I've never had my own room yeah like I mean if I, like, needed a place to stay for, like, emergency and I went to a place, I don't think they would kick me out. But, yeah. like, they're since they're both such wealthy women with so much independence in terms of, like, spending their own money and 
very established careers the amount of time and like the amount of their life that they did dedicate to their to each other during this era is like is there any other reason besides y'all were gay Mm -hmm. you know yeah And, and i think that's what we as a nation as a society need to grapple with i agree and see the thing is is that in this uh in this slideshow that is you know a work of genius and like like more more important than I think the Magna Carta is that <laughs> reputation is prefaced by this long statement that Taylor Swift wrote basically talking about you know gossip blogs will scour the lyrics for men they can attribute to each song slideshows backing up each incorrect theory <laughs> which we are mm-hmm. we're reading the slideshow but yeah incorrect anyway we think we know someone but the truth is we only know the version of them they have chosen to show us so she really was really talking about hidden love and not centering this public perception of who she is both in the sense in the misogynistic sense of like you know tabloids were always following her around asking you know who she was dating and what the songs were about and naming names and whatever and then in interviews she talks about how she doesn't want to name names and she tries to not i mean especially Mm -hmm. unless it's like specific songs like dear john or like style or you know she in in reputation it's pretty there's a lot of use of like second person there's a lot of only one inclusion of a pronoun throughout the entire song that's not I um it's just very it's very interesting in how it's secretive and therefore gay (laughs) and also I think her um in in saying that like you know she is showing what she wants people to know and what wants people to see and that you know people kind of make up these theories um are kind of looking for meaning beyond what she shared but also if people have listened to all of our episodes you may remember that I have brought up before that people speculate that the reason why gay people went particularly feral over folklore and evermore is because and, and, like, her straight, sort of just like, oh, this is a really good Taylor Swift album, but less on the gay front, is that she is able to, like, weave in these messages and these motifs that perk our little gay ears up, like little chihuahuas. Right. Um, that, like, straight people wouldn't understand. So she was able to come, she was able to come out to a very specific group of people who would be able to get it without having to out herself in any, like, public way yeah in any public way on one on page 11 of the slideshow there's a screenshot of a tumblr post from user a temper 18 and it says the title is ready for it this might have been said before but listening to ready for it which is the opening song on the reputation album i noticed taylor switches pronouns often at first she uses he knew he was a killer first time that i saw him then she switches to, to saying to you saying you should see the things we do baby i know i'm gonna be with you so i take my time it's like she's talking about two people in two situations the he she refers to could be her beard and the you she is speaking directly to is someone else someone she knows she will be with with soon so in the meantime she takes her time no one has to know she switches back to he every time she is talking about the jailer the robber ransom thief but when she sings of passion and secret love she switches to you they could be two different people beard and lover which is so funny because the oh. album right after reputation is lover yeah 
I, I had, that's good. I have always been very, um, like, when people are like, oh, Taylor Swift had to have been writing about a man because she uses, like, he pronouns. I'm like, first, he, she. Yeah. Like, it is, it does not ruin a rhyme scheme or uh-huh. a syllable count to and plus, in take her off. concerts, she does change pronouns sometimes. Exactly. And also, like, Elton John in one of his songs is, like, in, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the song because I can't hear it in my mind right now. But, like, he says, like, my wife and, like, talks about um, dating women and having sexual relationships with women. And it's, like, it's Elton John. Like, who is <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? So people are, like, oh, Taylor can't be gay because she's written about men before or we've seen her in public with men before. I'm, like, Elton John had to come out. So, like, our bar, like... The bar is quite low. And, like, for authors, and, like, she's a writer. Like, she she creates, she writes about her life, but also writes fiction. So this idea that it would be impossible for her to be able to either, one, have relationships with men, which, like, is very possible. Like, we say on the podcast, it's very possible that she's bi. Um, and that would explain why she has these public or things that the public and paparazzi can read as romantic relationships with men. But whenever she has very intimate relationships with women that, if you look at them, should be treated much more similarly, are just brushed off as like, oh, just they girls were best being girls. Friends. Yeah, just girls being girls. So, yeah. And like, the, especially the end game, the, the well, it was one of the singles off the album, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, was how it's like big reputation, big reputation. You and me would be a big conversation, right? It's like mm-hmm. the thing is, is that her and That's Joe. That's... Yes, Joe Allen is Taylor Taylor, Carly, Miss Carly, big reputation. Mm-hmm. You and me would be a big mm-hmm. conversation. I mean, it would be, right? Um, and also one of the lyrics is like, "It's like your body is gold," and so, and then in dress is like golden tattoo. So it's like gold as a theme and as an element well it's it's, it's giving taylor you little know? gay babes it's giving little a little gay. bit gay it's a little gay it's a little gay a little bit gay uh-huh. but yeah i think that they are gay and also also i i this this particular slideshow is about like reputation is about carly Kloss, and i think that it gives very much um no pun intended, blow for blow <laughs> yeah. uh, or blow by blow description of that relationship. And it's very it's very much how I think Taylor Swift would write about it, like right after it had ended or or kind of the feelings with the paparazzi was looking at them during that relationship. Whereas Lover, Lover, I think has more, it's gay. First of all, Lover is one of the gayest albums. Because, like, she's so, it's the bisexual hair, it's the gay It is. It's very much more, like, pride and, like, just it's It's giving Target pride collection. It's giving Target pride collection. A little bit. A little bit bad. Like, I was listening to it in the car with the lesbian bestie that I was talking about in Mm -hmm. in the other part of the podcast that you'll hear later, dear listener. Uh, We were Mm -hmm. talking about how, like, London boys started playing, and she was like, yeah, this is, this is some target pride section music like (laughs) and it's true but 
uh, folklore and Evermore, I think, sound more reflective and more it's the about cottage like core lesbian experience. It is, and also just more honest about mm-hmm. the experience. Whereas, like, I think reputation, reputation in particular talks more about when we say that like really close intimate girl friendships kind of blur the line between what is romantic what is platonic what is sapphism what is just two besties um and really explores that in an interesting way and just kind of like what it is to be attracted to someone whereas um lover is target pride and then folklore and evermore are very much about like now you know that you are sapphic <laughs> and what does that no exactly um, and so what you- stories can you pull like what what literary history can influence you know your writing now that you know and are more secure and you've had that experience being sapphic and spent that time and I think that's part of why those later two albums really show like growth um in yes. her music I think that, well, another, the slideshow for Don't Blame Me, like, Don't Blame Me is such a gay song, because, listen, mm-hmm. I once was Poison Ivy, but now I'm your Daisy, you know, how she goes yeah. in, in her head voice, yes, I once was Poison Ivy, but now I'm your Daisy, and she's really, like, Carl. okay, quote from the slideshow, Carly literally Instagrammed this picture with the caption, best road trip ever, with the picture of a Daisy on the dashboard, and tagged Taylor as the Daisy, and Taylor in the reputation booklet of her like you know uh, her writing initially her songwriting she doodled a very similar daisy in the reputation booklet and also in the Instagram photos of this trip she's wearing a daisy Carly is wearing a daisy in her hair and she there's a picture of her um of her draw oh my nose is bleeding again so if you hear me grabbing tissues it's because my nose is bleeding basically there's a picture of carly with daisy in her hair drawn mm-hmm. with a finger in the sand carly hart taylor like that's good how like why if, okay not me saying okay again but if you took this friendship like just these and it these was people, a dude a, a very similar, if carly a very was a similar, dude uh no it, these this friendship e- either them exactly but like their lives have changed but like some people with the amount of just like eyes on them yeah as they were there and superimpose this friendship in this relationship now in 2021 yeah the every headline would be gay yes gay which is gay Oh my god, these yes. bitches are gay. Good for them. Like the Literally. fact that they got away not got away with it, but that the The actual, audience think, that recognized this was so limited. Yeah, and like it was just like fans and like people online obviously recognized it and, and were connecting dots. But like the fact that like regular conversation, like why were they not invited to Glad Awards? Like, like <laughs> where was the Trevor project and all of this? Like why like how did this just go and also for me now looking at this as an adult lesbian and looking back on my memories of seeing their friendship as just a little gay but not knowing middle schooler and being like why didn't I think that this was gay like why did I 
just what was also wrong with me? Literally. feed into this idea that, like, oh, they're just best friends. When, like, I have never in my life seen a friendship like I, this. In, I, in this I've never seen way. two pretty best friends who are not gay. Exactly. I've never seen two pretty, pretty best friends, and therefore they're not best friends. They are girlfriends and exactly. have a very serious relationship. And together. delicate only proves this even more because it's gender neutral. You must like you must mm-hmm. like me for me. And third floor on the west side, me and you. Carly's NYC apartment is on the west side. The master bedroom is on the third floor. <gasps> Dark jeans and your Nikes. Look at you. Carly used to be an ambassador for Nike. Oh, damn, never seen that color blue. Carly's eyes are blue. Taylor's wearing a rainbow while singing Delicate in the Reputation tour. And while gay people don't own the rainbow, we do, so. They do. People who say that gay people don't own the rainbow, why? Why would we not? Exactly. Give me proof otherwise. Yeah. (coughs) Anyway, No, like, it's, and this is why there are questions of who's the of who broke whose boundaries because Taylor's like, I'm only telling you what I want to tell you, and I'm a writer, and yada yada yada. But girl, you just described head to toe someone that you have a very close public relationship with. So, right. are you just not? I mean, because I don't want to say like to say, oh, Taylor Swift is so unimaginative that you can't describe someone who she doesn't know in real life. But also, like, the math is mathing before our very eyes. So, yes, when we consensually kidnap Taylor Swift and make her ask all of our questions, <laughs> we will bring up the slideshow and be yeah. like, what do you have to say for yourself? Yeah. And then the next song on the album, so it goes, is. It's a lyric in You Are In Love, uh, which is another song that's speculated to be about Carly. And also, like, one of the lyrics in So It Goes is, like, gold cage, hostage to my feelings. Gold, once again, as, like, a thing, a, a, a what's the term? Motif. A, fucking, a motif throughout this fucking album. Yeah, that's that's Miss Carly, babe. Hostage mm-hmm. to my feelings. The closet, the closet, the closet is gold. It's a gold cage. Mm-hmm. And so you're trapped by it. You know, like this where you and then the and then the, so it goes where you like a necklace but okay 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 here there's pictures of taylor swift and carly claus having matching like initial pendants of like k and t um do they wear each other's no so they wear she wears the t and carly okay. wears the k it's like okay. the same necklace mm-hmm. though it's giving very call me by your name call me by you oh my gosh yeah so yeah they have matching initial pendants um caught up in the moment lipstick on your face but like that's interesting because there's these paparazzi photos of them walking out of like these bushes in like what looks like a la sidewalk or something and like carly Kloss is like wiping her face and there's like a red like like blotch on it like mm-hmm. <laughs> And oh it's, the God. thing is, is that I'm sure some of these things could be just simply explained. Like whatever. Yeah. But the thing is that since they're left unexplained and these of course we're speculating just parallel with it, it's like so many of these things could be answered, but you haven't. And also now their friendship is so layered with like, obviously... Uh, Carly still being French with Scooter and getting married and them not talking anymore that now any 
answering of these questions, any recognition of what this is would be so like layered. I'd be Mm -hmm. like, is that even true? Are you just saying this? Is it because it's ended? What is the truth? Mm -hmm. And like the song Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everyone thinks it's about Joe, but listen, it was written after they met at the Met Gala and several Mm -hmm. weeks before they started dating. Um, uh, Apparently, according to the the primary sources and clips in this slideshow, and it's also like, it's interesting because in the Reputation tour, like the the dance number to Gorgeous, it's all female dancers. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Very gay of you, Taylor. Instead of he's in the club doing I don't know what it's I haven't seen him in a couple of months is that was supposed to be the original lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you got a girlfriend, I'm jealous of her. But if you're single, it's honestly worse. Which I heard that that line was um, about he's in the club, haven't seen him for a couple of months. The original. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, it says she's out of touch with her public boyfriend, which at the time was Calvin Harris, I believe. Uh-huh, it says uh-huh. shade towards him, which like yeah, he deserves it. It's true, correct. And like, cause he like wrote songs that she even worked on songs that she helped him with, and like didn't put her as a co writer. Like that's nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like the whole the line of like if you got a girlfriend, I'm jealous of her. But if you're single, it's honestly worse. To be honest, in this situation, like, she kind of is the girlfriend in the question because she's still, like, dating Calvin Harris, even though they've not really been publicly seen together. And, like, obviously there's, like, having problems. But Gorgeous is really about people who, like, don't really know if the other person is single or you might not be. Like, but it's also, like, another takeaway from that line is, like, well, if you're single and you don't have a girlfriend, then that's just, then how would you know that that person is gay? Because <laughs> if mm-hmm. you're talking about a girl and she says, no, I don't have a girlfriend, it's like, okay. So does that mean you're not gay? Like, are the you tailors? Right. Ugh. And like, I mean, <laughs> sorry. The uh, I just saw a point on the slideshow that says one of the original lyrics was, "I'm so curious, what's it like making me feel this way?" And the only annotation just says, "Gay!" Gay! Gay! Point. Gay! Which, honestly, that's how I would annotate my books in high school, especially for summer assignments where we had to have an annotation per page. I would just track the gayness. Indeed. As one should. (sighs) A circus ain't a love story. And now we're both sorry. We're both sorry. Anyway, that's the next one. We have been... Okay, so now our conversation just now has been an hour... Our conversation with Ellie Eaton was um. So how we're we gonna do this? I don't know. A lot of editing. Maybe another two part episode. Who knows? Um. But uh, that is our kind of discussing of Kayla, which is very interesting. I think we should do it again. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Just full disclosure, I feel bad for people who aren't in Kayla. I don't know when we're going to stop starting our episodes talking about Taylor Swift and the sapphism that comes with Taylor Swift and her discography. <laughs> Maybe we never will. Until Someone Taylor tweeted Swift. at us on our joint account that, like, yeah. them listening to our episode about Taylor Swift is like, okay, I've never, I've never been a Swifty, don't know anything about Swifty lore, but now that, like, you're talking about it, I'm, like, writing down, yes, Taylor Swift is a lesbian, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, we just, we're trying to 
just churn out little Swifty Gaylor armies um, to to spread our agenda that Taylor Swift is gay. And I think I'm I'm really excited for whatever the tenth album is going to be and the re-recordings. If we're maybe we'll get some of the original lyrics, maybe maybe we'll get more pronoun changes. Who mm. knows? Who um, knows? Only time will tell. But the next thing that our lovely listeners are going to hear is our very fun interview that we did with Ellie Eaton. And it was kind of less of an interview and more of us, Sunny and I, just being like, so we noticed this. Was this like, <laughs> mm-hmm. what uh, What was your take on this? How did that kind of fall into the story? Um, and I definitely felt like a fraud in the mix. I don't know if it was if you could hear it or if you could see it I felt like because I'm such not a book person and Ellie is literally an author who wrote the book and obviously is very well read and reads a lot I'm like I was trying to be like not this reminds me of this movie um which I didn't and she brought up a movie that I was gonna reference before I did so I was like oh that's super cool hell yeah um but it was also a comic strip so she might have been talking about the comics but it's also very pop the comic became a very popular movie um actually that was going to be my recommendations so dear listener what you are going to hear is us transitioning into uh the interview with ellie eaton i hope you enjoy it it was super fun to um record and sunny and i are going to uh transition back to our recommendations that we usually do at the end of the episode so before you hear our recommendations, here is our interview with Ellie. This section, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about um, a book or, well, in this case, a book that me and Anna both read. And that was Ellie Eaton's debut novel, her coming of age novel, The Divines. And we both adored this book, rated it five stars on Goodreads. And we're, we're both also like kind of shocked that it didn't have an above four point like three star average on Goodreads. I mean, because like since I'm on BookTube, like when people like love a book, it's like so obvious on like Goodreads and like when people talk about it, but I just hadn't heard anything. So I was like, I was really taken aback. Well, there is that really interesting article about Goodreads on uh, Lit Hub, I think. Uh Um, That it talks all about that. Why do certain books get put in this window and I think that it's between 3.2 and 3.6 yeah and there's a whole section of writers like exciting times and lust yeah yeah and a bunch of, of books that have you know have been everywhere and, and are doing well but then just seem to it, the take that the writer has Ruth is that is about women discussing women's bodies very very yeah. Yeah. and that is fascinating to me right 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 I mean I was gonna say that in one of uh the, one of the discussion points I wrote down was that I read in one of your interviews that you really like Otessa or like you were inspired by Otessa Moshfag sort of yeah. like description of the body and stuff and I've also read Exciting Times and Luster and um Eileen and uh, obviously um oh my gosh my year of rest and relaxation and stuff and yeah. I and I do think like what you're talking about with people's just general discomfort with the idea of like the nitty grittiness of like girlhood and womanhood is like what alienates a lot of readers. Absolutely, yeah. And it's so interesting to me because I mean, I don't know the breakdown of of readers on Goodreads, like who is who are the people that are giving these ratings? But I'd imagine them like quite a large percentage of female. 
Yeah. And so you've, I find that all the more baffling because it seems that men writing about um, sex and malehood, like and male- malehood, don't have this problem. <laughs> and, and even, I mean, I think in this article it points to like quite provocative, visceral um, queer writing for men also yes. have that problem. And I'm like, exactly. that's interesting. Like, how yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Why does Call Me By Your Name have such a high rating on Goodreads? Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. I mean, I tried. So, you know, you, you go into publishing and you're aware that there are these like Goodreads giveaways. And so I became sort of aware of the platform in a way that I hadn't prior to getting published. And then I just had advice of people to just be like, just, just don't go near it. It's just not great if you've got a book on there. It's it really is. For readers, but don't, don't engage in. And you Never. go, no, I won't. And then, of course, you find yourself at like 3 a.m. just like gasping, like, oh my gosh, they just hate me. Oh, beautiful, like, really considered. I mean, there's everything on there. But yeah. I think at a certain stage, um, largely due to the Freedom app, which I just was like, for my own sanity, I can check it on, on a Friday. Oh, it's today. I could check it if I wanted. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, and then and then I just sort of stopped caring a little bit like I would yeah. I'd say that's no. good that's good because me and Renaissance were also talking about there's this one author <laughs> Lauren Huff do you remember I don't know if you were there for this drama but basically basically she got like dragged on Twitter because she oh. got really mad at these reviewers who gave her book like 4.5 stars did they did they trash her on Goodreads they just like they were- her with one star no no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that she happened was, after oh, right. she was getting really good like four stars but yeah, was getting yeah, upset that not every single review was five stars was star. and then just like completely disregarding all the people who were like in the review was praising the book but like yeah. round down at from 4.5 to 4. Yeah. And now she's suffering the consequences of having like a million one stars because reviewers are just like so mad at her for like <laughs> really interesting I never felt like mad I feel like I would be completely disingenuous to say like a horrific one-star review is gonna like needle there's just no way around it there's just no way around it but but at the same time I think I'd be a bit worried if I'd read a book that was universally loved I think I just think I'd done something wrong because I feel like you don't want your book to be loved by everyone because some people are fucked up like (laughs) and also you feel like well I want a book that um provokes that isn't safe that is challenging or strange or unusual and those are the books that I love and I I think whenever I felt a bit um insecure about it what I like to do is if someone really hates my book I just look at the books they love and if I'm like oh they really love this kind of fiction that I have I'm not into I'm like well that makes sense that makes not a reflection on them or me it's just their like reading preferences neither no judgment in, in like any scenario yeah. Um, I mean, okay, so let's, let's give our audience a kind of breakdown of your story and let me know if, if you think any of this is wrong. Because, like, my takeaways might be not correct. <laughs> okay, so the story follows an alternating perspective between our main character, Josephine's past, and her present. In every other chapter, we experience this novel from the perspective of a, Brit- of a British girl from a posh family who attends a very posh all girl boarding school, St. John the Divine, that's rife with potent, vicious, and bitingly realistic teenage angst and melodrama. 
And the other chapters follow a grown-up Josephine who moves around a lot with a like perfect German husband, exploring themes of motherhood and like mother-daughter relationships, the perspectives of teenage girls that you know they have with each other and how our teenage selves inform who we are and who we become as adults. We know from the beginning of the book that there was a major and tragic incident at the boarding school and that Josephine as an adult is married but still desperately clinging on to her past and uncomfortable reminiscences of her girlhood and following up the lead up uh, as well as so we follow the lead up to that like tragic event as well as the like follow up to or like the follow through with her marriage and everything yeah um and yeah so me and me and renaissance think the divines is like a masterpiece in its exploration of like girlhood adulthood and others perception oh my gosh like how the past influences their present anyway (laughs) thank you yeah that was a lovely description where were you when I was having to pitch it to people and describe it I feel like that (laughs) really annoying great now I I know (laughs) I adored the book and it might come as like a surprise because I typically don't like like historically I've never liked stories about teenagers like even I just turned 20 so I literally just exited 15 years yeah and even then like outside of children's stories that are about teenagers I never really liked the depiction but I felt like what was so enjoyable about this book is that it's actually like in the mind of adult Josephine remembering these things and that's what made it like really like grounded and enjoyable um for someone who like wouldn't necessarily be interested in boarding school stories um and so I don't very- think I'm very interested in boarding school stories which yeah. is really funny because I grew up reading like Enid Blyton's and there was this um play called Daisy Pulls It Off about you know posh girls at a boarding school coming good and saving the day and like there were centrinians was around and stuff and none of that appealed to me I just I was just like well I don't know perhaps because I I lived some of that to a certain extent and I and I was kind of repulsed by it and I just wanted to get as far away from it as humanly possible but I know what you mean sometimes you just don't want to read about material that feels too close to your own lived experience yeah. and I think maybe that's was that's it was. important when you were writing to not make it like a teenage story or was that just something that like, because you just said that like, that's not something you're interested in. It just kind of came naturally that it wasn't a teenage story. Um, yeah, I think it was interesting. I had a conversation when I was the first looking for an agent uh, in America. And I attached to a woman that, that really loved the teenage voice was like, she firmly believed it was a YA book. And I was so surprised by that. I mean, largely because I'm, um, and this is on me really, that I, I read, not one almost no way books that I know of yeah. um, like a literary fiction kind of reader <laughs> yeah and, I, and also but I think what really struck me was that I felt like you just couldn't have the two stories independently they would have been incredibly lopsided and and I think that the whole point of the book is that like one how does memory work like what's going on with us as adults when we look and reflect on our our, day, our days at school or our youth and also like how do those moments when we're teenagers inform who we become as adults because I think quite often people treat adolescence as this sort of stepping stone it's like oh well it's this stage that you need to get through to get to the other side and I'm like well there is no other side you just 
kind of are and this idea that what you do when you're a teenager you're perhaps not responsible for or you you know your brain's not fully formed so it doesn't really matter I find that quite a troubling idea yeah I heard um, that you I, sorry I keep on hogging the talking space renaissance <laughs> but this is this is a common issue anyway uh <laughs> something that I noticed in um one of your interviews was wait why did that just literally left my mind what were you Brett Kavanaugh oh my god yeah yeah and I felt like very reluctant to talk about that because a that happened sort of after I'd really written the bulk of the divines uh -huh. and also to compare posh girls at school with someone who'd been raped just felt yeah, yeah. pretty weird ground and I, and I didn't want to say that they were the same things but I think one of the things I kept thinking about when that was going on was like this this sort of idea by like one one the Karima people that, that well it didn't really matter because he was young it was so long ago even even if he did do it even if something like this happened yeah. you know he was a teenager and it was like wait is that is this this ultimate get out was the things that we do as like teenagers do they not have consequences should we not go back and apologize should we not like look at those actions and question them and challenge them and yeah I, I found that um, terrifying this idea that he was sort of somehow could it, it was all okay it could be washed over because it was something he'd done when he was too young to be held accountable yeah which is why I like how Joe grapples with her guilt for the entirety of the book and how it just haunts her and even people in her life know that it's not good for her but like she just can't shake it off and I feel like that's probably that's that's a really it's a very like empathetic way to like frame a character like her because Josephine is the kind of person who like in high school would have like bullied me like <laughs> so <laughs> it was very interesting I, I kind of yeah love in the position of seeing her I, because I was like girl you made so many mistakes that's on you like you were fucked up dude like and own it you kind of what's so interesting isn't it about her as a character I think is that she positions herself as the victim mm -hmm. for so long in the story. She she really feels that she is the um, she's invisible, that she is not the center of this universe. And then, you know, you come to learn, I suppose, down the line that maybe that's not, maybe that's not true. Or maybe that's this very passive aggressive way of 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 deflecting your guilt or saying, like, oh no, you know, or not owning it you know but she yet she can't let go she wants to she feels this huge compulsion to just understand and and make good there is a you know she's neither I really find that I I don't ever relate to characters in books who are either one thing or another because I just think that's kind of ridiculous and I think that you know she is neither good nor bad she's neither fully victim nor bully but she has capability like the capacity for incredible cruelness. I mean, particularly when it comes to, to Lauren, you just think how she was able to take in Lauren as a friend and then, and then you know, break her, you know, almost. The last time you, you physically see Lauren, she's on her knees. So yeah, she's not, she's not a comfortable character for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I really loved Lauren. So the ending of the book was particularly heartbreaking because like the entire time because Sunny read it before I did 
and I'd be like, I love Lauren. Lauren just said something really funny. I want her to come back. And then to see how that, like, the evolution of that character and that relationship throughout the story was really, like, satisfying as, as a reader because you wanted something and pleasantly, like, that was undercut. But also, like... Yeah. I, I it's just a heartbreaking character in lots of ways because the thing about the divines is, and the thing about how private schools work is that the kids in those schools are given this, um, the tools and the language and the codes of behavior that will get them through life, that will get them, you know, the unpaid internships that will get them, you know, through the door, this network of old boys and old girls, like that's how those worlds operate. And it's so interesting when you take a character like Lauren, who has no access to that kind of language. She just doesn't have that armory at her like, disposal. And so like when she asks, she makes this presumption, I suppose, that Joe, when she's doing her work experience, will have got paid. And of course she hasn't. It's a job that she got through her godmother and she stayed in her godmother's house. And like, it's all, and so Lauren, you know, though she's smarter than so many of the divines, would never be offered that same opportunity. And, and so you just feel like, I'm really, really reluctant to like tie things up in neat bows, but I did get to the end of the book and feel like, I just need to read it to know that Lauren's all right. And you only get her a very, very small glance of her, you know, through her brother's girlfriend when she, you know that she's at least left the town. Like she's got out of that town at least. You don't know much more about her, but yeah, I wanted there to be some hope surrounding Lauren because she's by far like my favorite character, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's the portrayal of how she gets into her adult life and job as a, as a journalist um, and how she feels so like detached from her work as a writer as opposed to her as a person because she she's still like not she's not processed her childhood and what has gotten into her that position I think and like her just mm -hmm. taking that the amount of privilege that she was just she grew up in at face value and with just such minimal processing and acknowledgement it was just like how can a person have such an internal a rich internal life with no internalization like <laughs> yeah that that lack of awareness of feeling like I mean just the even the fact that at the end of that school year when everything is you know imploded and exploded in a way like she she can leave she can rewrite her story instantly because she has this invisible safety net of wealth I mean she just she she literally just change moves the country changes her name you know like all these things are, are she doesn't think about them I think you're right I think it's the ease and it's really I think in the book only when she becomes the mother and then she's forced to think about well what kind of mother will I be what kind of daughter will I have and particularly the mother of a daughter I think it probably challenges her to say like well what kind of person am I was I will my daughter become yeah the scene where she was so angry at the the woman at like I think the restaurant who was like oh you're gonna have a you're gonna have a girl she's like no I'm gonna have a boy like she so anti having a daughter and like yeah I, yeah I thought that was actually very like relatable because it's like you know as like someone who socializes as a woman growing up like I'm like mm, if I ever do have kids like having a daughter seems so much harder <laughs> Because like yeah. the the absolute viciousness of girlhood that like I experienced and my interactions with not only like little boys but like the little girls and then the teenage girls, um, they they hurt mm. you like no other. And I think this story really really shows that. 
yeah the, the what the dynamics between those girls and it was it was um when I first had the idea of writing it I a little bit like narrating my book I'd gone back to England and kind of had never I left school and just didn't speak to another person I just really pushed away from that experience and and so I hadn't been back for a really long time and I knew that the school had been sold so I like driving around the town trying to like locate places and, and everything looked so different everything had been knocked down or destroyed or tarmacked over except this chapel and and I kind of elbowed my way past the receptionist and persuaded her to let me like sit in in the space where we would have gone to like our Sunday church services every every week and it was so physical it's that thing where you smell something and you're immediately transported I just I had that feeling of like almost like nauseating discomfort about what it was like to sit on that pew and feel so uncomfortable in my body and so hyper aware of the people around me and what they were thinking about me the paranoia that you've got your period and you're leaking through your dress you're just like and the, and the crippling like embarrassment of that of then having to get up and go like down past your peers you know and how humiliating that would be and and it seems so crazy now because it should have been a sisterhood it was all these girls together and we should have been so up, it should have been such an uplifting empowering experience and and really that's not my memory of my teenage years it was that you felt um directly in competition with there was a pecking order that was going on that was constantly shifting and a hierarchy that was in place um and your body was just did feel wild it felt like things were changing and erupting and sort of i was that thing that girls did like getting right up to a mirror and still be like, like examining yourself your pores your body like i really wanted to get into that headspace when i was writing it like how in Mean Girls, she's like, oh, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And she's in front of the mirror, yeah. like, being like, oh, don't even be mad about that because look at me because I have the, I, I mean, <laughs> I've also been in like those all girls environments yeah. as well. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I never went to like private school or anything, but like it, it, it's similar, similar settings like that. And I think like the drama of that yeah. ooh, it was so on point because it's like, you never know what someone else is thinking of you, but you get the vibes that they don't like you as much as you, as they did three weeks ago, but you don't really understand why. And then it's like, oh, is it because I'm roommates with this weird girl? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. It's just, I, when I, um, was thinking about getting American representation because I'd had an agent in the UK for quite a long time and and I was having insane telephone conversations in the cupboard at 3am when he was awake and could contact me and so it was kind of crazy and, and but I'd always been a bit anxious that the book was just too British for an American audience I was like well it's so much of it is about the oddity of the class system I don't know what its reach will be and I was chatting to a fellow writer friend here who's Australian and she was like but it, this isn't a British phenomenon, like this feeling between teenagers and particularly young women is like universal. She was like, I saw myself, and she said the scary thing was seeing herself not just as, you know, a, a victim, but like she was like, what really made me think about what I had done to other people and how I have just like pushed that to the side and kind of. Yeah. All yeah, I was gonna say, cause I grew up in the like California public school system, um, very large schools, co-ed my entire life. Um, my only like connection to the like British private school system was in the childhood show um, House of Anubis and in the movie Saint Trinians, um, which yeah. I love the movie Saint Trinians, and um, and that was like the only 
the only time that I had seen anything like that. But yeah. uh, reading The Divines, it was just the like intimacy that can either flip to like the most extreme loving bond or a like lifelong villainy that just moves throughout. <laughs> no, it well, it feels like that in teenage. You you end up graduating and moving and meeting new people, and it ends up. But in the moment when you're like living with someone or seeing someone every day, it feels like it could flip on a dime. Awesome. Now was really universal it was super accessible would they you still have those people that if you saw them on the street you'd literally like dive for cover there are i mean you i know, that hear going to my change. local target every single time i'm back home and i go to the local target i'm like no one see me no look at me henry, henry if you no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> um but with that like really intense female friendships one thing that really stood out to Sunny and I was like almost the inherent like queerness and, and some of the sapphism and that mm. that line is like really blurred and one of the first like memories that Josephine has that really stuck out to me was she says that like they were constantly touching each other and when they're in public they're kind of like always on top of each other um, yeah. In a way that really blurs the lines between platonic and what's a romantic relationship, and especially in a time when you don't really know that yourself as a teenager, when yeah, like writing absolutely. those scenes, um, were there moments that you like specifically wanted to make it platonic, or did you specifically want to leave things undefined? And how did you like navigate? Yeah. I'm really interested in matriarchies, I suppose, and what happens when groups of girls are all together versus, you know, that I worked for several years in an all-male prison and it, and it was really interesting to see how those two things differ. And I think, I guess what I, I was thinking a lot about when I was writing those teenage girls is, is you know, as you said, they are always touching each other. I think there's a description of them like lying between each other's spread thighs at the like, you know, like around the base of the statue and stuff. And it's incredibly like intimate interactions, I think. They're, they're in bed, tickling one another's arms. They, they're very aware of each other's bodies. But I, I think at that age, I really wanted to get into that mindset of where actually men for the divines are almost like irrelevant or a bit silly. Like they're these things, they're the, they're the entity that you play with and then dispose of and shove back over the wall, even when these, photographs start arriving which you know really could be kind of menacing killed me that was so funny and I also and it was such like such a perfect I think example of how like when I was in middle school in my all-girlfriend group or whatever like the like it was very much like play pretend with the idea of men but they're not real people we are real people (laughs) we're the yes that we're and actually that's really important like that's what I kind of wanted to get to like the the that they although they are a boy obsessed in some way but the, the boy it's not about who the men are the men aren't given an, an interior life of their own it's they're just almost like collecting cards they're not really yes. real in these girls lives but what is real and what where the obsessionizes with each other and where they fit around each other and i think that really is true of the female ex- well my female experience is that you know the most important thing to me beyond all ever were my female friends and like those relationships and I think at that age they really there is this very blurry line between like what is attraction what is friendship the two kind of dovetail over each other and you know and I think 
you feel for Lauren because she doesn't know how to operate in that world. She's such a, she's got such a tight armor around her, such she knows what she is. And in many ways, she's so much more mature and advanced. Like she knows exactly who she is. But she can't yet tell. Maybe she presumes to in some extent that Joan knows that, that she'd have to be sit, idiot, like an idiot not to realize, but, but she doesn't know like how to talk about it with her, I think. And so, yeah, that it's just so sad because you can see how that relation, that friendship and that relationship is just going to like shatter that it can't, it can't be sustained, but you can't stop it happening because one is completely ignorant of what's happening with the other side. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is, I mean, two things about that was that me and Renaissance were, we've talked about in other, in other episodes about like the inherent like homoeroticism of like male power and how men view women as those trading cards, as these unreal objects and stuff. But obviously within yeah. like how patriarchy plays out, like when it's they all male. from that. They benefit from the objectification yeah. of. Yeah. Whereas when girls are raised not to see men as potential like um projectors of like harm it can get really dangerous and that that definitely you see that with the polaroids and that storyline where they think it's yeah they think it's funny and they want to try and collect them and then when they actually have like the school assemblies when it actually hits them that oh they might actually be in harm and they didn't even realize it and, yeah like, and and all that time jerry is carrying like that information with it. like as well you know there's yeah. someone amongst them that is like incredibly vulnerable and they're just too self-absorbed to sort of recognize that there is like real danger there I suppose. Yeah. I mean this kind of also everything relates back to our love of Taylor Swift but <laughs> something something that I I was thinking about today was like what's so interesting I think about like Taylor Swift's discography is that everyone has made fun of her especially in like the teen in the in the 2010 like like paparazzi tabloid era everyone was like oh my mm. god this girl goes on so many dates with so many different men mm. and then she had her like really famous like girl group of like all these celebrities that she was friends with and like that made me really think about how like she's been writing music since she was like 15 like that those feelings of like the inherent queerness and closeness of what is accepted as normal within girlhood yeah um, but then like the fantasization of men like playing out in your like mind like it was so I don't know that was so like funny and like parallel to see within the book I know but what's funny about that era is you think like now presumably teenagers have all these incredible role models like they have this spectrum of of, of femininity to like look at which is which is incredible. Those girls from the 90s, you just think, my God, I mean, no internet, you couldn't have Googled anything. They're just, those girls, me, like, <laughs> like there was no, if you, if you were curious in any direction, where would you go to? There was nowhere to go to except your peers. And, and I think in that divine situation, like, you know, there is, there is no one, they use, the word gay in a pro you know like as a kind of a swear don't be so gay don't like there's that I think there's a section where I write about that that idea of like how you just bandied that word around and this like and it's just you cringe when you think about it about it now but yeah there's a fellow uh, there's a writer that uh, called Emily Layden who's got a book out called All Girls which is set in a an American boarding school um I guess just before the Me Too movement but there are open lesbian couples in this all-girls school and it was really interesting it's like oh that 
I can't imagine writing the book that I did set in contemporary times because the, the world, I think the field, like that whole world must have changed enormously since. Yeah, that's so interesting because I was just now hanging out with one of my other like lesbian friends who is, uh, who went to a Catholic all girls high school in oh, St. Yeah. Louis lots of catholic old girls high schools in st louis and she went to the one that was like notoriously gay like like <laughs> there were lots of like gay relationships in but in like the drama that would happen like i've just heard so many interesting st- stories about like all the things that would happen at this like the bubble of this private school and how yeah. like they're all still so like close to each other and every time I hang out with girls who all went to this school when I go when I hang out with the people who graduated from the school the rapport that they have and the way that they talk about their teachers and like how they visited the high school still like so interesting oh my gosh it's so and it's such an interesting peek into like what like what girlhood can look like within the confines of something that is supposed to be so limiting like that catholic like christian (laughs) pedagogy that which is like so it always backfires because every catholic girl i know in high school had a drinking problem because they had so many parties like especially in these suburbs like the cops never got called or anything so (laughs) oh and another thing about the use of like gay and like lesbian as terms as like swear words and stuff that's so that was so funny because it made me remember how when I was in middle school, uh, I was standing outside with my friends and my, the choir teacher and like the theater teacher walked out of the building and was asking us whether we had applied to be within the thespian troupe, but she almost said lesbian and she was like, oops, almost said a bad word. And then she like walked away. <laughs> how interesting that she used that bad word. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I had, um, you know, occasionally you get readers that, that find you like by my website and and typically they're lovely people saying how much they like the book but occasionally you get someone that's really upset by something in the book and I had a woman recently who was just so angry with me um because I'd used I use but it's actually Lauren who uses interestingly is the word retarded she says don't be so retarded yeah um and it was and I took my time responding to the woman because I was sort of one, I wanted to make it like I was saying. Like one of the weird bits about being a writer is when you in, when you as a writer inhabit characters, you are making them say and do things that are not reflective of who you are now as an adult human being. But it would be like ridiculous to pretend that the, that the word gay was not used in that way, or that like retarded wasn't a word that just tripped off the tongue at that age, and that and that now you would never use it in like in conversation. But it's really really important to say that actually probably there are groups of people that still do and uh, of course especially of course. like teenagers at my high school and and like people I know yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know it's really it's a really interesting one and I, like, I understood why it, you know and it then turned out that she had a family member with down syndrome and you understand why these words are triggers but I just felt like it was really important to explain that like you have to be you know that I, you don't choose these words flippantly that they that they're there for a reason that they they're trying to show something or like show how these institutions operate and I think it really helped like show the difference when we're in the memories of Josephine in that particular time and like how what her experience was growing up with the internet and the changing of the times and like a really big article that she writes is about the gymnasts and so it shows like how a very, you know, insular community is affected by male violence in her adult life, which parallels kind of, you know, what happens in 
her memories and how she reflects on her time. Yeah. And she looks ashamed, but there's a reason that she's not telling Jürgen what, what she's done. Like she really yeah. is. She's, she's, I think, ashamed of her privilege, that he's someone that is really like, comes from mountain people and has had to work to get where he is. And she is the, the complete opposite. Like she's, all, she's aware of, she's aware of that privilege and embarrassed by it. But I don't think she knows how to like, talk about it in a way and so that hence spiraling into this obsessive cycle of like digging down into her memories yeah and lots of people don't like most people never come to terms with like who they were as a child and also like the things that they grew up with that really like impacted how how they view the world and then it's like what but i mean with josephine it was like she that that switch of like being in that space and having all those visceral like memories and then also like becoming a mother and trying to navigate and like I think another thing about the internet being present within her when she's like in her 30s um and like being like trying to internet like trying to cyber stalk her former peers and stuff so so relatable we've all done it we've all done it yeah I mean I I think I had a very strange moment where you know I was writing the book and I was so in that world and I started to think about, you know, the skipper-like figures from my own time at school or those girls that I was so enthralled to that seemed so powerful. And there's that very, I had a really strange thing about reading the Instagram post of, of one of these girls who I'd gone to school with and she talked in a very sort of, um, it felt like a very genuine way about her time at school and how she had all of this stuff going on in her private life with her father and her mother and like her dad had left home and she was adopted. And she, she presented this very vulnerable view of herself as a child and talked about how she'd come to our school feeling um, so fragile and how nurturing and protective and how wonderful her school experience was and how these girls saved her. And I was just like, what? The, the, the girl that I remember was terrified. I mean, terrifying. She was like, she was so domineering and so cutting and just barbed and 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 really like haunted me for quite a long time. Like, you, and I and it really made me feel in the way that Josephine does it. You start to question whose whose story is the truth. Like, who am I? Have I just seen her through this lens? And I was so unaware of the backstory that I I've completely misinterpreted her entire demeanor at school or is she now kind of has she created this fantasy world around her own history to protect herself it's just it's, that whole idea really fueled the book it was so interesting to me I was memory is is I think inherently flawed like I think and and so with Josephine like I think for me memory works as these fragmented puzzle pieces that we put together and usually we've got these people around us that have known us our whole life and they say oh well it was a bit like this and and it's like this collective understanding of who we are as people and then you take I wanted to take a character like Josephine and, and she's got no one there's no one there to validate who she is so then what happens to your memory if that's the case like you I think she has this incredibly warped view that's one way of putting all the puzzles in completely the wrong pattern together yeah, which towards the end of the book, spoilers for listeners, because I, I have a little bit of a question, but I like when you get to the end and you realize at the memories that her peers are saying of what happened and she's completely, she's like, I don't remember that at all, or it didn't go like mm-hmm. that. She's kind of like having this crisis of like, what if everything that I've ever remembered is wrong? 
And then in the last scene when Jerry like snaps at her at the end before leaving. And then you kind of see is like, well, that kind of is true. That is the Jerry that she remembered this whole time. Yeah. So is real, what isn't. And that's like, what was so interesting. That's why I'm yeah. laughing. I was like, oh. Yeah. And I guess like I felt very much that I was operating in this bit of fiction, which was like the coming of age story or the Bildung's roman and like, you know, what typically happens is like if you take a Jane Austen for example not less so but in, in that normal formula you have a character who like is a teenager and they go out into the world and they learn from all their mates they make a bunch of mistakes and they learn from it and they travel and then they're reabsorbed by society as these like better people and you know in, in Austen they always get married and then like they're kind of given the stamp of approval by the by the patriarchy but you know, I find those stories so interesting because you just think, well, we live in this culture of betterment and self-improvement and this very goopian world where there are all these things we can do to come to this fully formed version of ourselves. And I think I just, I mean, perhaps I'm like a deeply flawed person, but I don't feel that I'm in any way fully formed. I think that um, I'm as likely to feel insecure or angry or jealous or bitchy as I've ever been I just process those emotions perhaps in slightly healthier ways I hope but like they're all there you don't you don't erase them from your being it's part of being like it's part of being human and I, and I think female anger is this really taboo subject and, and I wanted Joe to be angry like I wanted her to be quite vicious both as a teenager but also she's quite forceful with her kids sometimes where she's the dog sticking the dog in the cage and just like I don't know like I wanted female anger to be something that I could bring into play in this book and like remove some of the taboo around it yeah I really liked um there are some moments in the book where I almost like winced or cringe you know just because like yeah. it's so visceral like I could like feel it and also I, I could like see it in a way that was like this is like a real person <laughs> in a way where like you know other I think portrayals of womanhood or women is kind of an escapism fantasy woman like in a perfect world this is someone that I could yeah. hear could exist and Josephine is a really like real woman and a real person who the portrayals of teenagehood that she's reflecting on are very like intimate which I really appreciated as someone who doesn't like the kind of like girly pop um yeah me neither I like I like the rawness of the yeah it's, it always surprises me that that teenagers are given that sheen like I guess it's a very cinematic view of what teenagehood can be I mean there's some really great writing now about like girls and women oh, this I don't know if you've come across this one yet but it's yeah that's on my to, re, to be read <laughs> yeah Don yeah, Till's um oh it's I'm holding it up so it's not very good for podcasts is it um but it's milk <laughs> it's milk blood heat <laughs> um yeah by Don Till W Minis it's it's really really great as an evocation of, of of what women are about and in, in this very like yeah it's very visceral I think visceral is a word that's banded around a lot but it really is that there's a real real sense of femininity and I think like I guess you know Josephine isn't me but like there are certain experiences that we share like like being mothers and I remember there's a lot of talk 
around motherhood that's very soft it's like you've given a bit of yourself to your child so you're slightly lesser and you you're fuzzier there's baby brains you're a little bit fuzzy and soft and my experience of motherhood was the absolute opposite of that I had never been so sharp in my life I had no time for anything that was going to like get in the way of either like being with my kid or or writing and it was like time was short and so I was like I couldn't deal with bullshit anymore I was like that or got no time for it I have to go I had like a very um I felt a sense of urgency about writing and like an anger about the state of the world I think Brexit was kicking off Trump was kicking off and I was so angry that I'd brought a daughter into the world that was so grim like I was like god what have I like what have I done and so uh, yeah my it was like hugely fueling in a way it was like well I'm just gonna anger write this book and and in a way some of the venom in the book I think perhaps comes from being in that headspace so yeah I was thinking when you were talking about the whole like girlhood into adulthood or like when you when you come of age and like become the full version of yourself that really reminded me of uh Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird like how at the very end of the movie like we don't she doesn't know who she is and neither do we we don't know who she is either like because she's set spent so long thinking that she knew who she was thinking her relationship with her mom was in one way and her relationship with men was in another way and her relationship with her friends was this way but at the end none of none of that reveals to be forever to be true and it's interesting that books that go the other way and do tie stuff up neatly and come to some conclusion and I think a bit like you were saying it's like a wish fulfillment isn't it it's like oh I wish that life was that simple or I wish that I could be that together but then but then it's pretty rare that anyone is that way yeah is there anything else you wanted to mention Renaissance yes I have one question this is just my little nerdy brain um but you've talked about how like the phrase I am divine like came to you before writing the book um and so one I think like it it, there's kind of this imagery of like God and and the relationship that the school has with the town and the people of the town that surround the school kind of gave me this feeling of almost like a a Mount Olympus with like the Greek gods who you know sometimes go out and play tricks on the people and and have different dynamics within themselves was that like allegory or or using that you know parallel relationship of greek gods and boarding school was that like really purposeful or to make it i guess more accessible or how did it hunt absolutely was um i rearranged my books a bit because i started a new project but for the entire writing process i had the greek you know robert graves like by my desk and I was always obsessed with Greek mythology as a kid I remember it's like one of the big early picture books that I had had all of those images and yeah and, I, and it really I mean I had that line I am divine and then and then I did start to think about divinity and it was very much that idea of the Mount Olympus you have all these people that can meddle and they really do meddle in Lauren and Stuart's lives like she can like play with them and then just like retreat back into her bubble. As soon as it gets a bit tricky, she she does is reabsorbed by the divine, and it's like, like in his like wealth is godhood almost. It kind of is, and and I I mean there's and then I think once I started to make those connections, uh, I just kind of had fun with it. So there's a scene like there's a moment where she's pricking. Um, 
she's pricking her finger obsessively. And I think it's Phaedra in the Greek myths who is obsessed by, she's been made to fall in love. And she sits there like watching this like, this man do his exercises sort of in preparation for some games. And she's there like pricking herself or pricking a leaf with a pin. And so the, those little moments, and even really like the figure of Jerry falling and, you know, she, there's there's a character in the Greek myth that I ILA, I don't know if I'm saying that right, who who is who jumps from the cliffs and is saved by her skirt billowing down and she floats down and yeah and, and I think there is something about teenage girls that's very chameleonic like you they shape shift in the way that nymphs do you know they're constantly changing who they are um, and and changing with the winds and I, and I kind of. <laughs> Yeah, wanted to capture a bit of that. So yes, the, like the Greek myth nerd in me definitely kicked in in this book. It just seemed like too interesting a parallel to ignore. I kind of liked the idea of it once I had it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think my last question, I didn't have this written down, but now that I'm thinking about it, like what are what's the deal with your new book and like the process with your the current book that you're writing? Well, I broke my brain in the last year by being on the internet too much. So that's a thing. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt really fortunate in many ways in that, you know, that despite getting published during a pandemic, there are amazing tools to connect with other writers and people like you. Like, that, I never would have had conversations that I've had of it had it not been for like Instagram and Twitter to a slightly lesser extent. Like, I found like a community of people. But I think because I was on it so much, I feel like my brain is is far fuzzier than it ever was after having a baby, I tell you that. I'm just like, oh, God, I feel like, I just feel kind of a bit exhausted. Um, all the time. All the time. And so, yeah, it's, be, it's been, writing has been much slower. And also just the geography of the house of having people here all the time. I hadn't really realized how much of the writing process involves walking around an empty space looking ridiculous just like staring into the mid distance and talking to yourself and then and unaware of your own body and then it's only when there are other people and you walk into the kitchen there's another human there and I'm like ugh, just get out <laughs> I'm sorry I'm a horrible person to live with right now I think if you don't like you know it's like those TikToks that are like if you don't leave the kitchen right now I'm going to have I'm going to like explode like I I need to be here alone right now <laughs> yeah I mean luckily um my husband is he he operates in a similar way they're both people that need silence and space and and recognize when the other person needs it as well so I'm kind of lucky from that point of view but I think it's just this world is not very conducive to creativity I think be it sitting on the bus and overhearing a conversation or like sitting like walking around Echo Park or all of these things um that have been kind of taken from us in the last year have met I think I've just meant that like creatively I'm just slower than I would be, but I am slowly getting into a new project and it's, and it's good. It feels healthy. And, and, and I think if you really wanted something for a very long time, like getting published, it's an amazing feeling to have your book out in the world. But I had a friend from Chicago who, you know, when I was feeling really low before I got published about my hopes of ever getting published. And she was like, look, when you have a book in, if you have a book on the shelf, it's not like people are going to be high-fiving you on the street when you walk down the road. <laughs> And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I know. But like kind of there is this moment like of kind of postpartum 
publishing where you're like, oh, okay, well, that's sad. That project is over and, and I begin this other thing. But it's also great. You're really ready to move on. So, yeah, I, I'm trying to write. Um, I think I'll always be interested in, uh, I guess, like power and femininity and, and, and how it works. And I'm trying to set something in prison at the moment. So, Oh, speaking of have you read uh, The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner? I have, yeah. I actually went to see her speak about it down at my local library. I thought it was really, really, really interesting. She has a very close relationship still with the women that she worked with in prison. Um, and so it was interesting to me just to see how that had fed into her writing. I think it's a really interesting book. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it it's, seems like British prisons work there's crossover obviously but I think they're so individual they're such a straight it's such a much like private schools private boarding schools in England it's one of our oldest institutions and they still operate in a very archaic way um and the people that choose to work in those systems are pretty interesting like it's a very very strange strange world but what was really fascinating to me was when I was writing the divine just like oh you know this is an institution whose entire purpose is to keep the elite in their position of power yeah. A prison using very similar techniques mm -hmm. is operating to keep this whole other section of society down and like mm -hmm. unable to escape yeah. the cycle of poverty or, or crime. It's so interesting how they're not, whilst being very different, they're quite similar in lots of ways. Yeah, it's like it's like the same institution, just based off of how much money you have, and like where you just happen to be born into life, you end up in one or the other. You either get into those yeah. places that like you can circulate within, and you know through like nepotism and good luck and whatever, you can just sail through life and and, and grapple with your guilt on an internal level. Whereas for some people, you make a mistake when you're like 15, and then for the rest of your life, that's you, it. That, that guilt is not internalized; it is external. It is every element of your waking day. And, um, yeah, yeah, 100%. Anyway, yeah, I, I find it, um, I find it almost embarrassing talking about work in progress. I don't know why, I don't, I don't, can't quite articulate like what it is that makes you feel. I think maybe even having written a book and several books before that that didn't get published, you, you feel like a fraud, like you feel like when you're talking about it, that you're that you that imposter syndrome really, really is so real, even though you've got evidence sitting in front of you that you wrote a book that, that is out in the world and people are reading, like you, it's really hard to shake that off. So, yeah, well, we will both be reading your next project. <laughs> thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. So, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and speaking with us. This has been so much fun. Thank um, you. So thank you for having me. So that was our interview with Ellie Eaton. Lovely, amazing, incredible, as you can tell. Um, she's such a lovely person. I'm so glad we got to talk to her. And yeah, I don't know. And plus, listen, being able to talk to the person who like made something that means so much to you, it's just another level. It's like another experience, I think. And she was so humble and like a real person but like I don't think she knew how excited I was to talk to her <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was trying not to like nerd out and be like I'm a person who is on a podcast and is just talking to a normal person but on the inside I was like how do I not scream that I love this book so much and <laughs> I'm like shitting my pants right now talking to her <laughs> I'm like the, I'm like the thing that I enjoy so much came out of your brain like you were the person who created something that mm -hmm. I like lost my mind over for uh -huh. 48 hours and like uh -huh. you have no idea 
that I like was frantically texting Sunny out of context quotes of the book. I was FaceTiming Renaissance at random points being like, no, listen, this is what happened. Like, like, I don't think she could sense the actual behind the scenes of like what our experience reading the book was besides the fact that we obviously really liked it um yeah exactly and so anyway so that was really fun and so now I I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that interview as much as we had fun doing it and talking to Ellie and and hopefully this will this will kind of start a, a pattern maybe we'll be able to talk to more of the creators that we consume their content um God, God can only wait, wait. We can only hope. Yeah, we can definitely only hope. Uh, from our lips to God ears, God's yeah. ears. Yes. Please send us more cool people to have on our podcast. Exactly. Um, oh, you should anyways, tell me with- the thing that you want to recommend. Since we're at the recommendation portion of the podcast, tell me what was the comic mm-hmm. strip adaptation? I don't remember like the name or anything. Like what? What was it? Yeah, so this is my recommendation. It's the movie, um, and it is called St. Trinian's. And it's a children's movie, and I watched it not as a child um, when I was 19, so just last year. And it was because I was watching um, one of my favorite actresses' entire filmography because I just kind of took up that challenge over the summer for quarantine. Um, And the actress is Gemma Arterton, and that was her very first film. And it was obviously a part of her filmography. And so I watched it thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to watch a kid's movie. Probably going to be cringy. And it's genuinely not only one of my favorite Gemma movies, but one of my favorite movies, period. And it's a children's film. And it is so, it's so funny. It's it's a really funny film. Okay, so this is a brief description of, of the plot of the movie. Is, um... This uh, really posh English girl gets transferred uh, boarding schools to the one that her aunt runs um, because her, like, father doesn't want her going to another school. And so she ends up transferring to St. Trinian's. And she's kind of seen as this, like, super posh outsider because the girls who go to St. Trinian's are kind of known for being wild and having a lot of hijinks and just... And just, like, kind of being, like, the... Not like other girls of uh, boarding school culture. And um, and so the main character, Annabelle, gets uh, transferred into the school. And while they're at the school, um, they find out... Closing. And that all the girls would have to end up... Like, if they can't figure out a way to save the school, they'd end up having to leave St. Trinian's. And that's kind of where a lot of them, like, grown up because it's, like, a elementary through high school boarding school um and they wouldn't be allowed to get away with the hijinks that they do at St. Trinian's as they would at other schools and so they all kind of freak out and they end up planning this heist um to steal something from the National British Museum in order to sell kind of on like the black market to get money to save the school and there's so many things in the movie that would kind of seem inappropriate, like allusions to drugs. There's actually more allusions to heavy drug use, but in the editing, they ended up taking it out because they didn't think it was the most appropriate for like seven-year-olds to be watching it. Right. Um, but it's really funny and like oddly quite sapphic and feminine, not oddly, but quite sapphic. 
business and like because it takes place in this all-girl boarding school it's like every role both the dominant and the submissive are female characters in a way that like kind of shows the spectrum and breadth of of girlhood instead of all girls being submissive or being in a really like toxic way it's actually like in a very complimentary way Mm -hmm. um and anyways I think that was a really long, I think that was like a sunny version, a sunny, a sunny summary of the movie. But one thing that I want to point out is that the movie is written by two men and then directed by two men. It had two writers and two directors. So four men were like the creators of this movie, but it's like not weird and like quite feminist, like not male gazy at all, which was really surprising. Um, and just super cool. Anyways, so I you heard um, Ellie mention it, and I also brought it up in the interview. So that is also my recommendation. Saint Trinian's is from two thousand and seven. It's a really fun movie. Okay, what's yours? Cool. I will check it out. Um, so the book that I want to recommend to you is one that you can check out as an audiobook from the library uh, app. Libby mm-hmm. because that's what I did and it's called Docile by Cam Sparza or Spara and this book is okay it's not at all similar to The Divines it's more similar to Sorry to Bother You which we watched last night mm-hmm. um, because it's set in this near future well not even near like this dystopian world that is quite realistic in relation to the class structures of the world around us um and docile also is similar to the divines in that it does not have really great ratings on goodreads mostly because i instead of because people don't really like um not that it's not because like with the divines we were talking about how it's because people just don't like hearing about the grossness of femalehood and like womanhood and like girlhood and they don't like the intimacy of that ultimately and that's pretty that's a common thread in a lot of goodreads reviews but something that that i found was a common thread i feel like in in these goodreads reviews is another thing that we discussed with with ellie was that like people couldn't really differentiate the difference between the author's intention and the uh, character's intentions and the character's portrayal because docile is ultimately a story about abuse and consent and grooming Uh, the tagline Mm -hmm. for the book is called there's no consent under capitalism because Mm -hmm. we're set in a world where everyone has accumulated everyone who is like poor or middle class has accumulated incredible amounts of debt over the years a very similar to you know right now everyone is dealing with medical debt and grappling with with student debt and loans and everything but the thing is is that there was a law that was passed that basically meant that all debt was generational and it got passed down from from within families which meant that people normal ass people poor people working class people who've worked their whole lives ended up ended up having just millions of dollars of debt that have collected and built interest over the years which meant that in order to kind of solve this quote-unquote problem like you know this problem that was conceived through the very nature of capitalism and the evilness of it there is now the system of debt repayment where you can sell yourself as a docile, uh, meaning as like a servant, a personal servant who not only it does all of 
the domestic tasks, but also is basically like a sex slave um, and uh, just a personal slave and servant in every way uh, for a period of time that is a contract. And there is a company that is also involved in this book that produces something called Dacillin. Dacillin is this is one of the science fiction dystopian elements of the story, even though the entire thing is like, you know, set within that within that framework. Um, Dacillin is something that most dociles, upon taking the role of the docile, usually to these incredibly wealthy people, um, because, you know, the class stratification within this society is insane. Um, these, you ended up taking Dacillin as like an injection that makes you entirely oblivious to your existence. It's kind of like you are on autopilot and you will only do the things that your like master tells you. You will do anything that someone tells you to do. And after it's done, you'll get the antidote and you will not remember having that experience at all you'll just go back to your normal personhood or that's what they say but our main character i think his name is alex he his mother he's one of he we we okay this is also similar to um uh the divines in that every other chapter is alternating perspectives but instead of the same person we are following the perspective of the rich son of a ceo of the company that creates dacillin and his servant his docile so his docile is this i'm i would go get the book but i don't want to leave i don't want to get up to this chair and find it anyway but the docile i'm just gonna call one ceo daddy's boy and the other one (laughs) is docile so docile is to the docile is he knows that Dacillin actually has long-term side effects and it has a long-term effect of ruining your memory and your identity and your personhood by removing it from you personally, like entirely. Um, and he knows this because his mother worked as a, as a docile for like 20 years. And when she came back to her family and to her home, she was not the same person. She was compl- She was basically like a shell of herself um and doesn't do anything except on autopilot so he he basically decides to go in to the to the docile like company and um sell himself as a docile and he ends up becoming in service of the ceo rich daddy's boy and the ceo's rich daddy's boy uh in in the process of selecting our main character our real main character of the story um these two men end up in this relationship that is very fraught for both of them because the CEO's daddy's boy is thoroughly convinced in the morality of his dad's company and in the in the fact that it's made the world a better place and that his position is to take his father's position as CEO one day and so he needs to exert and exhibit the power that he has as a patriarch as a male within this world and also as a CEO and so he and his friends of you know other rich people who are also heiresses and 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 heirs and you know daughters and sons of of ceos and people who develop this the evil technology that controls this hyper technolized capitalist world um and the lifestyles that they enable so it's the story because we are getting the perspectives of both of these characters we understand the grooming and the abuse and the way that consent 
is bought and sold and what really is consent and how much of the brainwashing quote unquote is something that's physiological as opposed to psychological and because the thing is is that our main character because he understands that his mother is is suffering a long-term abuse of dacillin he does not take dacillin he Mm -hmm. goes into the relationship as a fully sentient human person and he has to be trained by his basically new owner uh to be the docile that everyone expects the ceo's son to have you know someone who's so on top of everything hello okay just put it on the floor of the chair okay thank you Three hundred. Okay. Um. So what the fuck was? So yeah, that's basically what the story is about. We follow the the course of their relationship and how toxic it is because it's rooted in you know literally the CEO daddy's boy like buying out this guy's like soul and life uh, for a limited time, and then how it impacts the person and how it impacts him and you know how he becomes or how he attempts to become like. A class trader because he realizes the way that it, the way that this class system and the exploitative practices of his dad's company really hurts the people that he loves and the people that he loves people that they love so that's what the story is about and it really does remind me of sorry to bother you and it has the intimate kind of gross relationships between that we talk about in the homoeroticism inherent to men and and power and domination and all of that so yeah, I think you would, I think it's very, like, trigger warning for sexual assault, obviously, and grooming and abuse, but, you know, if you want to, if you can stomach it and you can suspend your disbelief for, like, the world that it's set in, I think it's just a mm-hmm. really good, it's a really good reading experience, and it's it's one of my favorite books of all time, I think. Um, I think it has very smart commentary about the nature of capitalism, consent, commodity, capital, so, yeah. Wow. I will definitely, that sounds interesting, and I want to uh, read it. And you and said I'm it's on to, Libby? And yes, it's on Libby, and I'm trying to ease you into the world of, like, science fiction and fantasy, so. <laughs> no, this I'm down for fantasy. science fiction. Ease me in. I like science fiction and fantasy. If you say so, is this news? Was, was this unknown? No, before? it's not. It's just that, like, in a lot of the media that we discuss, it's very rooted in like realism and stuff. So I was just unsure. Oh yeah, I mean, I think in um, in things that I watch now, but I mean, I don't, I don't know if I want to admit this so publicly and so early into the podcast, but like, you can't go through a Once Upon a Time and a Harry Potter phase and be a King Arthur nerd in the way that I was and not still have a love for science fiction and fantasy, particularly fantasy, fantasy more than science fiction. Um, but if it's done well, I, I, I don't, I don't stray away from those genres at all. Oh, and, great. And we talked about how Land of Stories, it was one of my favorite, was like the last series that I read as a kid that I really liked in terms of reading Yeah, for myself. And that's fantasy. Okay. <laughs> but um, I don't. I can't remember the last fantasy movie that I would have watched, though. So I could see how, or show. So I could see how you would have gotten that from what I consume now. 
enough. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm interested in reading that. So those are our recommendations. Is that your only recommendation? Because sometimes you double up. Uh, yeah, that's my only recommendation for today. Okay, awesome. So that has been our episode. We, well, Sunny and I, we started with the interview, but we started on for this episode talking about our friendship a little bit if we're keeping that in. Yeah. Um, uh, Kalor and the infamous uh, slideshow that uh, details how Reputation, the album by Taylor Swift, is about her relationship with Carly Kloss. And then you heard a very fun conversation that we had with author Ellie Eaton of The Divines. Please read, listen, any way that you consume books, please read that book because it is so good. And obviously we loved it. And Ellie Eaton was so much fun to talk to. Um, If you listened to this episode, hi, Ellie. (laughs) Thank you for talking to us. And um, and then we have our recommendations. I recommended the movie St. Trinian's based off of the comic strips. Um, that is a British children's uh, movie. And Sunny recommended Docile, the book by, what's the author's name again? Cam Sparza. Spara. Spara. Very cool. Um, and so that is this week's episode. And we hope to see you all in our next week's episode, which I do not know what we're going to be talking about. No trailer. No trailer. No teasing. There's nothing to tease. We don't know. Yep. Y'all are just going to have to come back. Um, yep. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Bye. Bye. Let me fuck it up. Why won't I? Okay. <laughs>